United States officials, when they characterize Russia and characterize Putin, they make major mistakes and assessments. They make major miscalculations about how Obama decided to build relationships with Medvedev at the expense of Putin. These are major mistakes. This is Russian politics 101. You do not severe relationships with Putin when you want to develop relationships with Russia overall, simply by building relationships with the official president. And Russia, informal power circles, informal power elites, informal networks of power are not less but more important than formal ones. That's, again, Russian politics 101. And the fact that this is not somehow conveyed to the White House, to the major decision-making, is unfortunate. Hello and welcome to ESRB's podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Andrei Tsigankov to talk about the historical trajectories of Russia's foreign policy and how they influence Russia's assertiveness today. Andrei Sigankov is a professor in the Departments of Political Science and International Relations at San Francisco State University, where he teaches Russian and post-Soviet comparative and international politics. His most recent book is Russia's Foreign Policy, Change and Continuity in National Identity. Here's Andrei Sigankov. So let's start by having you outline the, the history of Russian foreign policy trajectories. You've argued in your work that there are basically three. There's a period of coalition with the West... There's a trajectory of a policy of defensiveness, and then there's a policy of assertiveness of Russia's foreign policy objectives. Talk a bit about these different trajectories in the broader context of the history of Russian foreign policy. Well, that's correct. There are generally three. I refer to them to them as traditions, simply because despite all the interruptions, historical changes, some fundamental changes, such as the revolution and the post-Soviet change, they still somehow survived these three types of thinking, and they reflected in foreign policies as well. So this thinking is first that has interested me and continues to interest. And then, of course, the outcomes of this, how Russians acted on, on that thinking, and that came out of a disagreement with uh, realism that everything in Russian foreign policy is about power or security, that Russians are somehow predominantly thinking in terms of power and security. And I think uh, Russians are no different from other major nations. They have, and the smaller nations also have some ideas, some principal beliefs, principal ideas, and they think in terms of in terms of fulfilling those ideas. Sometimes these are defined as missions, sometimes these are not defined as missions. It really depends on where you are and who you are, what your relationships with your neighbors are. So Russians have had certain idea of a nation, have had certain idea of foreign policy, and it happens to be the idea of honor, the idea that Russians define as chest. And chest in Russian has multiple meanings. Chest can be defined as chestness, commitment, obligations. It can also be defined as достоинство, or dignity, pride. And the third meaning is achievement, slava, glory. And that's roughly what can be applicable 
in terms of understanding Russia's foreign policy here, because Russian foreign policy is about either preserving its obligations to its allies, and oftentimes when Russia cooperated with the West, it acted out of understanding that both Russia and the West are bound by common obligations. Second is the tradition of dignity, the tradition of Russians acting on their own sense of what their interests are, what their values are, and out of the sense that the West is not recognizing those interests and values. So it's about lacking perceived lack of recognition by the West. And it's about Russia's relative weakness, inability to act on its own, inability to still defend its honor, and inability to still protect your interests because of its weakness. So the West doesn't recognize, recognize us, but we still cannot act on what we believe is important. So we have to wait until we're able to gather some domestic strengths. And that's the tradition of defensiveness. Relative isolation to gather domestic strengths, to pursue some flexible coalitions, and hopefully within a couple of decades to recover as a major power and then return to world politics. Can you give a historical example to illuminate one of these? Sure, sure. I specifically researched the case of, in this book, on uh, ONA, I researched the case of uh, Gorchakov, and that's after Russia lost the Crimean War. Russia obviously saw itself in the uh, position of weakness, and it was objectively the defeated party in this war. But it could not act on its preferences. Its preferences had to do, of course, with preserving fleet in the Black Sea Fleet and remaining a major power in the Balkan, in European affairs. And all of it was gone because Russia was defeated. So it needed time to recover its status of a great power. It needed time to return to world politics. It needed time to regain the right to have the fleet in the Black Sea Fleet. And Russia eventually did it. It took Russia two decades uh, before Gorchakov was able to build an alliance with Bismarck, and ultimately Prussia became Germany as a result of this alliance, but Russia got its fleet back. So that's one example. During the Soviet era, I used the uh, post-Bolshevik era, when Stalin is already in charge, but he certainly doesn't feel that he is ready or able, or even willing, actually, to act on the, uh, Lenin and Trotsky's uh, ideas of the world revolution. And he is retreating into the period of what he called the socialism in a one single country. So he's trying also to rebuild strengths. He's trying to develop some understanding with major Western nations. This is when, uh, as you remember, Germany recognized Russia. Russia reached some understanding with France, but not with the United States. And so he's using this time in order to rebuild Russia economically and then finally be able to say some decisive word in world politics. And then in the post-Soviet era, because I wanted to establish this as a tradition rather than separate incidents, so I draw cases from across different eras, from the pre-Soviet era, Tsarist era, and that's the post Crimean era of concentration, Gorchakov, specifically Alexander II is the Tsar, and then the Soviet era of Stalinism, early Stalinism, Stalinism in one single country, and then the post-Soviet era is primarily Evgeny Primakov's attempts to resist NATO expansion unsuccessfully, trying also to recover domestic strengths unsuccessfully, but the intent was there, the direct parallels was there, and Primakov too was thinking in terms of reviving Russia as a great power and pursuing some flexible coalitions. But this was a different time. This was no longer multipolarity. So that policy was doomed to uh, to fail. 
and he was unable to recover China and India as major allies at the time. This came only later. So this is a defensiveness. Let me let me ask you a question about Primakov and, and his influence on Russian foreign policy, because when he died last year, there was a lot of thinking about his place and thinking about particularly his influence in uh, Russian foreign policy circles. Can you speak a bit about the, his legacy amongst the foreign policy establishment in Russia? Well, it's a, it's a formidable legacy, particularly today when Russia's thinking is primarily in terms of tradition of reviving great power, in terms of tradition of uh, returning to world politics. This is the time when, in some respects, Primakov is all of a sudden is almost more popular when he was, when he became Russian foreign minister. And that's because the conditions have changed. The conditions, the conditions are now different than when they were when Priyakov was foreign minister. At the time, he was simply trying to do what was not possible to do because of Russia's weakness, because of the time of instability in Eurasia, because of the United States' overwhelming power, because of China's uh, unwillingness uh, to contribute to change in the world order. All of this, all of this was was not present there, and a lot of what was not present there is becoming more present today. And so Primakov's legacy now is revived first because it's important for Russians in terms of their dignity that they are able somehow to recover from from weakness. And Primakov was the probably the most important voice, the most important spokesman against the idea of strategic retreat and uh, westernization at the expense of Russia's interests at the time. He was able to consolidate statists. He was able to consolidate those who think in terms of Russia as a distinct civilization as well, which is a different way of thinking, but it is compatible with statism. And Primakov was a bit of a, a bit of both. And he was also not alien to thinking in terms of cooperation with the West, a cooperation that would not be detrimental to Russia's national interests, but nevertheless, cooperation, meaningful cooperation. He had strong relationships with uh, many Western leaders. He did not always agree with them. They did not always agree with, with him, but they had strong relationships. And don't forget that he is also someone who was, he was also someone who had his roots in the um, new thinking. His roots were not only in the Arabist camp of scholars in, inside Russia and the journalism of major newspaper, Pravda, and then director of the Institute of Mirwa Economic, World Economy, International Relations, but he was also a member of Gorbachev's team. And he was a member, a proud member of Gorbachev's team with his own ideas of how, how a new thinking should work. But he was not opposed to those ideas. He always wanted to overcome this stigma of the Cold War. He always wanted for Russia to become a normal great power. And that is also something that is important to keep in mind. He was able to appeal at the time to all major camps in Russian foreign policy, and he continues to appeal to those today. And the conditions are favoring his revival, his legacy today as well. So no no other statesman in Russia today probably commands as much respect as, as uh, Zbigniew Primakov. Now, let's, let's step back a bit and have you talk about the role of Russian national identity, because you've already mentioned that Russian foreign policy comes out of issues of honor, issues of respect, if, issues of, of greatness. So how does national identity play with these concepts in, in foreign policy throughout uh, Russia's history in the 19th and 20th century? Identity, of course, is, is about 
belonging. It's about relations uh, that a nation, uh, if we are talking about national identity, nation has with a larger world, with a larger community in the world. And that's the first point uh, to make. The other one is that, of course, it's usually contested. Uh, there is no once and forever established national identity. Usually nations are not homogenous, not as homogenous as politicians would like to present them sometimes. And so you have multiple schools, multiple competing identity schools and foreign policy schools. Some argue that it's best to pursue your objectives in isolation, and others argue for engagement, different kind of engagement. And in Russia, the most meaningful community historically has been Europe, 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 and then the West. Uh, and certainly uh, the uh, intensity of Russia's historical, diplomatic, and cultural interactions with Europe uh, has been very, very important ever since uh, Moscow appeared on the uh, geographic map. Even Ivan the Terrible and, and, and his predecessors uh, strongly related to Europe, not to mention Peter the Great and uh, Catherine the Great and all the, uh, uh, all the subsequent developments. Russia is, was, and continues to be a major European power, even though it has very, very special relationships with the uh, non-European and non-Western part of the world as well. By its history and by its identity, it continues to be a major European power. But there is a, and that explains also the intensity of Russian language with respect to Europe. Uh, you know, if you compare Russian language uh, towards Europe, towards the West today, it's different, for instance, from non-Western powers language. It's different how, how Russia reacts uh, to Western statements, even about human rights. is different from how China reacts, for instance. Uh, it's, it, really, it really is more intense. It's either we are, we are all of a sudden friends and strategic partners, or, or it's, it's almost a language of insults. It's, it's, it's like sibling rivalry in, in some respects. So this is, uh, this is a quarrel within the family. And so you have three different schools of thinking and three different uh, identity interpretations that also have been consistently present. One is in favor of strong cooperation with the West, uh, and these are what Russians call, uh, call uh, Zapadniki, uh, Westernizers. And they are Westernizers because they share Western values and because they want to pursue essentially pro-Western policies, pro-Western foreign policies. They believe, they believe that Russia is no different from, from the rest of uh, Western civilization. It's a part of Western civilization. And it's just a matter of time before Russia will fully embrace it. But the other two schools are different. The, um, they emphasize distinctiveness rather than similarity with the West. They stress independence. Statists stress specifically Russia's political independence, that Russia is a great power, it's sovereign, a great power, and it has its own distinct interests. And these interests are defined by its uh, geography, by its history. So they think very much alike Western, with Western realists. It's about preservation of security, it's not about uh, domestic politics. Even if we share values, oftentimes with the West, it really is not about values. It's about our interests, it's about preservation of status, it's about prestige, and it's about power. And then the other school also thinks in terms of distinctiveness, but it is about cultural distinctiveness. It's about values. It's about separation from the West uh, in terms of what our domestic political system is and should be like. Uh, it's about specifically 
Russian is, for example, some of them are uh, Russian uh, supporters of Russian values. Some of them are supporters of some sort of synthesis between uh, Slavic and uh, uh, Muslim uh, community. Is this a kind of Russian exceptionalism? Yeah, it is a Russian exceptionalism, except except that you have to be careful with isms, uh, because not all of the, not all of these people are nationalists. Not all of these people are exceptionalists in terms of nationalism, in the sense that they believe in superiority. Some some of them believe in simply distinctiveness. We are different. Doesn't mean that others are better. Doesn't mean that others are worse. Doesn't mean that we are better than others. We are just different. And what suits us suits us. Uh, and if Western-style democracy uh, is is good for the West, uh, that does not mean that it's corrupt. That does not mean that the West is corrupt. It does not mean that we are superior to the West. We are just different. So it's rel- relativism. But the other, but the other side of it that is perhaps more influential. You're right. Makes makes all the points about superiority, ideological domination, and this is traditional Slavophile discourse in Russia as well, although Slavophiles too were different, but some of them, particularly pan-Slavists, believe that Russia is fundamentally, culturally, morally superior to the rest of Europe. Yes, it is part of Europe, but within Europe, it's the better part of Europe. And you hear some of these discourse today as well. So these are the most important schools, they continue to inform Russian foreign policy thinking. Today, of course, statists and civilization is dominate and westernizers are considerably weakened uh, as a result of all the developments after the end of the Cold War. But during the historical developments in Russian foreign policy, uh, certainly cooperation tradition, tradition of building alliances and coalition with the West, was very much informed and shaped by both westernizers, particularly moderate westernizers, and statists. And defensiveness is is more of a tradition of statism. Assertiveness, too, to some extent, although it depends on what you're acting for, right? These are, in some respects, tools, and it's important also to keep in mind main goals of Russian foreign policy. And sometimes these goals are pragmatic. Russians simply want to cooperate with the West uh, to meet some joint security objectives. War on terror, for example, is one that Vladimir Putin, after September the 11th, pursued with George W. Bush or Maxim Litvin of collective security attempt to isolate Hitler uh, in Germany, which is also pragmatic. But then Russia also acted out of joint purpose, out of joint moral ideas, Traditionally, during Tsarist era, it was about Christianity. It was about protecting Europe from some alien uh, Ottoman influences or other influences. Uh, and Russia, therefore, participated in a major identity project, so to speak. You've already set up in the in the post-Soviet period a period where there is Russia is relatively weak in the 1990s. It can't. It has to seek either cooperation. It has to build up its kind of domestic capital, domestic forces. And during this time, of course, you have the domination of the United States. And in the last 15 years after 9/11, you have the United States quite assertive under the guise of the war on terror. You have the invasion of Iraq. You have the war in Afghanistan. And you have the United States active in, a, in many, many states on a, in a, on a lower level in terms of drone warfare, et cetera, special operations. And then you also have the um, colored revolutions of the 2000s and then the most recently the Maidan revolution in Ukraine and the Arab Spring. So 
how does the Russian foreign policy establishment, when it looks outside over these events in the last 15 years, how does it understand what's going on? Well, you've, you've, you've described most important developments. You might add to this uh, also the uh, continued NATO expansion. Another major round when the former Soviet states, three Baltic states, were added to it. You might add to this also the European Union expansion uh, when this program was formulated, Eastern, what was it called, Eastern Neighborhood Program, when the major Eastern European countries were invited, but Russia was not at the time. And then you mentioned military interventions and the colored revolutions. All of it, of course, contributed to Russia's sense of isolation. First, they felt that they were pushed out of Europe. And Dmitry Medvedev, who is credited now justifiably as more pro-Western, more pro-European than Vladimir Putin is, was trying to build a new framework for cooperation with uh, Europe, you might recall, Pan-European Security Treaty. As a result, nothing came out of it. It was shelved and it was flatly rejected by both Europeans and the United States. So Russia felt that it's out of Europe and it's out of Europe being a major European power due to mostly due to the United States policies, United States preferences. So oftentimes when Russia is characterized as a revisionist power, or resurgent, I guess the term is that Barack Obama uses and others, it is fair and even fair from Russian perspective, but only if you make a very important qualification that the United States is a revisionist power too. The United States is a major revisionist power after the end of the Cold War. It tried to establish the world order that Russia has been trying, particularly after the Munich speech, but even before the Munich speech, to 2008 to revise. And because it views this post-Cold War system, U.S.-centered post-Cold War system, as fundamentally unjust. It's a violation of balance of power. It's a violation of uh, multilateralism and international law centered on the United Nations. It's disrespect for Russia's interests and traditional area of, of, of influence in the former Soviet Union. All of it, Russian establishment finds unacceptable. And so you have uh, resentment, and you have resentment building up slowly but surely, and ultimately when Vladimir Putin is back, and when he is trying to reach out to George W. Bush and reach an understanding with him through cooperation against terrorism, then that cooperation fails again, and he makes one last effort, one last attempt with, by putting forward Dmitry Medvedev as his successor rather than Sergei Ivanov, who would have been a very different story for the West. That's his last try. After this, he is bitterly disappointed, particularly with the United States, and he is on the course of assertiveness. To, to the extent possible, he is simply trying to establish his ground. He is trying to protect Russia's interests as he sees fit, and he wants ultimately to reverse the continued Western expansion, NATO, the EU, interventions, regime change, because now he believes, justifiably or not, but he believes that really the West is out to change regime in Russia too. Russia tends to respond, and you and you, you got this a lot recently coming out of particularly Dmitry Peskov, that there's claims that Russophobia is at the root of much of American demonization of Russia, particularly in its exercise of foreign policy. In your opinion, does Russophobia play a role in the history of American foreign policy toward Russia? Well, it's a, it's a good question, uh, Sean, because I've written about Russophobia first in um, the mid-2000s, then the book came out in the year 2009, 
And at that point, nobody in Russia was talking about Russophobia in the United States. And when that rhetoric of Russophobia was finally employed, this was already in uh, 2011 and 2012, then the meaning of it was not the meaning that I had in mind. Because I was describing specifically the politics of Russophobia. I was describing the anti-Russian groups within the U.S. establishment. And these groups were formed during the Cold War. Specifically, they pushed consistently towards the hard line with respect to Russia. People such as whom I characterized as military hawks and some liberal hawks as well, the Eastern European nationalists. And these people survived the Cold War. And today we can call them as, uh, characterize them as a, an alliance, difficult, uneasy, but alliance of, of neocons and neoliberals, but also some Eastern European uh, nationalistic lobbies with the agenda of uh, essentially separating Russia from the West even further. The uh, problem is, and that's a very important point, is that these groups, even though they influence the U.S. policymaking, uh, they don't really drive the U.S. foreign policy making process. Uh, because U.S. government, U.S. political class, uh, as diverse as it is, uh, also has a, a, a very important group of pragmatists. Those who concentrate on uh, uh, different priorities, those who have in mind limited cooperation with Russia, those who understand that it's impossible to solve some very, very important issues in world politics without Russia's participation, without having Russia on board, and those who understand that simply concentrating on demonizing in Russia would do no good to the United States' interest. And so it's important to separate these groups from the policymaking. They are in the, in the relationship. The U.S. government exploits the Russophobic rhetoric occasionally, and occasionally it is dependent on this rhetoric, and occasionally these anti-Russian groups that I described in the book are quite powerful in influencing certain decisions, but they're not still they're not getting their way. And they will not be able to get their way because, because of these primary considerations and because Russia is, was, and will continue to be a great power. It's important to not isolate it, but to actually get it on board. So one, exa one example, Sean, is that uh, these groups, for instance, consist consistently lobbied uh, recently for the United States to provide little weapons for Kiev, little weapons for Ukraine. And even though the United States made major mistakes with respect to Ukraine and uh, Russia in, during this crisis, the uh, issue has not been resolved in favor of a Russophobic lobby, in favor of anti-Russian groups, because the government understood, Obama's administration understood that this would have extremely dangerous consequences. So on that issue and some other issues, I can give you multiple examples. The uh, priorities of the state and priorities of Russophobic groups are different. And that's what's important. And that's what often is missed in, uh, in the Kremlin and by some uh, pro-government experts in Russia. Now, I want to get your... Um... It, well, let me ask you this question. Uh, many analysts, I've read this repeatedly in the press, and, and many analysts in the West say that the decision-making circle around Putin, particularly in terms of foreign policy, has shrunk considerably in the last couple of years, since, since Ukraine in particular. And some people say that it really not only does the last dis, uh, decision lie with Putin, which isn't surprising, but that a lot of the decision-making is by Putin himself. Do you agree with this idea that the circle has shrunk? And if it has, what role does expert opinion in Russian society play in influencing Russian foreign policy? You know, the press, academic experts, people within the, the foreign ministry, etc. I don't agree with this, not because I think that this 
foreign policy circle uh, in the Kremlin is incredibly wide. It's not. It's, it's a relatively narrow circle. But I don't think it has become more narrow. This assessment, um, I believe, comes from the uh, Putin's decision on the intervention in Crimea, uh, where he was consulted, uh, where he consulted only the uh, Security Council, only the so-called Siloviks faction, and then the decision on his own short order. But really, traditionally, this has been presidential foreign policy. This has been, if, if you reach farther back to history, this has been an autocratic decision-making uh, system, uh, with with an exception of the uh, Brezhnev's era, when the um, Politburo was there to decide key issues and Brezhnev was, was not as dominant of a figure as Stalin. Uh, now we are back to the traditional decision-making system, самодержавный decision-making system in Russia. And I want maybe at some point to make a distinction between самодержавие and autocracy as it is understood in the, in the West. But nevertheless, it is a narrow circle in terms of decision-making. That, however, does not mean, Sean, that the Tsar or Putin in this case do not rely on advisors. They have very elaborate, very extensive circle and networks of different advisors, different agencies. I would argue that this circle and the uh, pluralism of these advisors, in some respects, uh, is not, not more narrow, uh, but even more, more broad than the circle of advisors and the experts in the United States and in Washington. Especially today, where I think Russia expertise in the West is shrinking, where United States officials, when they characterize Russia and characterize Putin, they make major mistakes and assessments. They, they make major miscalculations about sanctions, for example, or even how Obama decided to build relationships with Medvedev at the expense of Putin. These are major mistakes. This is Russian politics 101. You do not severe relationships with Putin when you want to develop relationships with Russia overall simply by building relationships with the official president. And Russia, informal power circles, informal power elites, informal networks of power are not less but more important than formal ones. That's, again, Russian politics 101. And the fact that this is not somehow conveyed to the White House, to the major decision-making, is unfortunate. So in Russia, you have, on the other hand, a growing expertise, very, very prominent uh, expert institutions progressing, developing, such as Valdai Club and Russian Council of International Affairs, Gorchakov Fund, uh, and more traditional ones, and are now taking on a new role, such as Institute of World Economy that I mentioned before. They are becoming more prominent, not less prominent today. And Putin relies on these institutions. And I know this for a fact because I spoke with, with some of these people. And I know some of those who wrote Putin's speeches. And, some, and sometimes they are in the Kremlin and sometimes they are not in the Kremlin. So the circle is quite broad and quite wide. It's just that the final decision is still Putin's. Well, I want to get your opinion on some of the major foreign interventions in the last couple of years during Putin's third term. Let's start with Russia's response to the revolution in Ukraine uh, with the annexation of Crimea and the support for separatism in the Donbass. What is your opinion of Russia's response to the Ukrainian revolution? Well, let me let me say just uh, back up just a little bit, Sean. Let me say that the third term 
of Putin did not begin with uh, the Ukraine crisis, right? You remember that Putin met with uh, Barack Obama, was a strange but still uh, promising meeting in Mexico, and then Putin decided to not attend the NATO summit in Chicago. So he signaled at the time to the White House that he wants cooperation, but he also wants cooperation that is respectful of uh, Russia's own position, Russia's own interests, and he's not going to make too many concessions. And that's one important prelude. And the other one that, of course, soon after this, we witnessed the so-called war on value. Uh, Barack Obama, as you remember, uh, signed the uh, uh, Magnitsky Law, and uh, then the White House and the State Department strongly supported, uh, strongly condemned the uh, verdict on the Pussy Riot. Then Barack Obama also launched the anti-gay rights campaign and uh, de facto boycotted Olympics. So this is the context in which Putin operates at the time. And then, of course, Ukraine crisis comes along, and it's already crisis decision-making. Uh, he has to act quickly. He has to make certain decisions. And so, in some respects, he was presented with a very difficult circumstance. He had to have a tough reaction to the uh, Ukrainian revolution. He could not recognize the Ukrainian revolution. And it's too bad that the West at the time chose to recognize the revolution and chose to recognize the one side over the other. He had to preventatively annex Crimea, which is what he did in order to spare all the violence in Crimea, given the circumstances, given the power growing power of the right sector, given the uh, army of Kolomoisky that we uh, we learned of uh, little, uh, uh, soon after this. So all of these developments, I think, were practically difficult to avoid. But Donbass, uh, however, in my assessment, is a different story. In Donbass, you certainly have a large Donbass, Lugansk, to some extent, uh, Odessa, but less so, Mariupol. So this southern Eastern Belt uh, is a different story. It's still not Crimea. It's largely pro-Russian potential in terms of uh, historical memory, in terms of Russian soft power, in terms of language and so forth. But it's not pro-Russian potential in terms of being able, being willing to take up arms and to fight against Kiev. So this, again, this is not Crimea. Crimea is special uh, Crimea certainly always felt special, and even uh, mass polls show the difference between Crimea and Donbass. So expecting Donetsk to be Crimea, if such expectation was uh, Kremlin's mind and Putin's mind, was a major strategic error. And different means could have been and should have been used in order to reach the, um, hopefully, the understanding with Kiev that Donetsk and, uh, and the east of Ukraine should become autonomous, should gain sufficient autonomy and should be able to preserve the relationships with Russia. We don't know enough about this issue, unfortunately. We don't know enough uh, about how exactly Putin, Surkov and others exerted the influence uh, in the East, uh, in the South. Well, what we know, what we have read so far uh, from different sources, uh, suggests that the Kremlin certainly overreached, in many respects overreached. Uh, and it, there, there, uh, there might have been very different means and tools used to mobilize supporters against, at the time, the growing willingness of Kiev to use force against uh, the South and the East. 
But uh, again, much of it, in my opinion, Sean, much of it when it comes to Kiev, when it comes to Ukrainian revolution, was inevitable because it was a crisis decision making and something had to be done quickly. I see. So basically the situation was the Kremlin couldn't just sit idle and let this happen on its border, given its yes, interests exactly. over, over Ukraine and it, but particularly, I would imagine, the proximity. Exactly. Because as I said, there was a whole chain of events moving in this direction. And in the Kremlin's eyes, it was a culmination of Barack Obama's disrespectful treatment of Russia. After all of these uh, developments with Dmitry Medvedev and missile defense system, and the uh, war on values, and uh, Putin reciprocated. He also launched all kinds of uh, na- nasty reactions in terms of values against uh, propaganda of homosexuals, and of course uh, the uh, adoption of children by Americans. All of this you remember. And then, and then on top of this, on top of this, in addition to the boycott of Olympics, you get this: you get the United States endorsing the illegal seizure of power and essentially saying to Putin what uh, what what you have done has failed so far and so what that it is illegal as long as we have our guy in Kiev that's fine now there's also Russia's intervention in Syria um what motivated Russia to intervene in this civil war when when so the United States for example it's it avoided actual direct intervention in any large scale it's always been more covert and through proxy and and what do you think of the outcome of this intervention in Syria for Russia well, I wouldn't I wouldn't over complicate this John I I think Syria could, can be understood in terms of same two points that I have just made about Putin one is his core values, uh, anti-terrorism core values, and that that's how he started with the United States. He wanted, ultimately, to build a joint strategy based on uh, war on terror, and he was sincere in this. He believed that fighting terrorism, for fighting terrorism successfully, you must rely on established states. Whether they are democratic or not, as long as they are established states, we should be able to pull our resources and uh, eradicate this evil. So, in some respects, he was thinking about terrorism also in grand terms, such as George W. Bush uh, used, uh, evil, evil and so forth, eradicated. But on the other, on the other hand, the, appro- the approach, the strategy was fundamentally different. It was state strategy rather than regime change strategy. That's one core belief. And the other one is that, again, the United States world order, world system is unacceptable. That we must restore balance of power. We must restore our interest in Eurasia and multilaterals. So this is what Syria is about as well. It's about fighting terrorism and it's about revising the world order. Putin chose his time carefully. He went uh, to, to New York to invite Obama, but he already knew, almost knew, that he would get no. So the next day, uh, he launched the uh, intervention in Syria. And then he withdrew, uh, as we now know, uh, that was also in preparations. And the outcomes so far, at least in the short run, are very positive. It has been a very successful intervention. Uh, of course, in the longer run, we continue to have problems. Syria is likely to be a mess for a very long uh, time, many years ahead. But for now, Russia is able certainly to show that its anti-terrorist approach is working that it's best to deal with these people, with ISIS in Syria, through Assad, not outside Assad. Now we have victories in, uh, in, in uh, Palmyra and in, in around Aleppo. So on the military front, there are major successes. And Russia, of course, uh, is close to end its political isolation by the West. Now all of a sudden, it's even uh, been considered for G8 again. 
that's news. Then Russia is certainly has regained influence in Syria and the Middle East. It has improved marginally, but it has improved its position with respect to Ukraine. And it preserved its reputation and security at home. Uh, so that's basically the positive outcomes. There are negatives too. Turkey is one, Egyptian plane is another one. But general picture still looks positive. And of course, it's only a tactical victory. We'll see what happens next. And finally, um, what, what directions do you expect uh, Russian foreign policy to go in 2016? So I, I should apologize for asking you to be a bit predictive, but uh, just to give you your thoughts. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be predictive, particularly about uh, 2016. Uh, I'd say not just 2016, but many years ahead are going to be very difficult. Uh, many years ahead, we will see uh, essentially a conflict, a systemic conflict with some incidents of a limited and short-term cooperation. It's not going to be a new Cold War, but it certainly is going to be an already is a geopolitical rivalry, a great power rivalry under the United States' relative decline of a global control. And the worst probably will be avoided, but there will be tensions and problems. Probably no serious progress in Ukraine, no serious progress in Syria, possibly new instability in other regional spots. And constant threat of a major uh, regional, not global, but uh, regional uh, political and military confrontation in East Asia, Middle East. And so, unfortunately, that's the uh, uh, that's that's not a very optimistic scenario for the future. But it's not the most pessimistic either. That was Andrei Tsigankov, professor in the departments of political science and international relations at San Francisco State University, and author of Russia's Foreign Policy: Change and Continuity in National Identity. I'm your host Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review on iTunes or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye. (laughs) 